0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Hulu. For $7.99 a month, watch all nine seasons of Seinfeld and so many other shows on all your supported devices with your Hulu subscription.
1: The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Margaret Lyons, and I'm here with Matt Zoller-Seitz. And our noble moderator, Gazelle, is on the road this week. So we're going to be flying, I guess not solo. We'll be flying duo rather than trio. <laughs> I prefer
2: blind. But you know, we'll see how it goes.
0: On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the season premiere of True Detective, the first half of the new season of Orange is the New Black. And at the end of the show, Vulture's Alex Jung interviews Annie Golden, who plays Norma, who you don't usually hear from because Norma is the one who does not speak on Orange is the New Black. But to get things started, Matt, did you have a favorite TV moment of the week?
2: I did. It's from Orange is the New Black. It's the moment at the end of the pilot when Poussey is cleaning up and she finds the shred of piñata. And on the inside is a newspaper page from the comics. And there's Calvin and Hobbes, which we saw her mother reading to her in a flashback. That was a killer And we'll talk about it a little more, but that's probably altogether my favorite episode of Oranges and New Black since it started. I just think it's amazing.
0: My favorite moment this week, I, I'm not sure I can pick a moment, but I really love the new show, Catastrophe.
2: It's um, funny as shit. It's
0: super funny. It's yeah. super, super funny, but it's also, it has like a real heart to it. There's like a real strong, ro- it's a rom-com basically, even though it's very raunchy, there's still a real earnestness to the characters, Rob and Sharon, yeah. and it's Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan, and you might recognize him from Twitter and her from any kind of British comedy you might have enjoyed in the last <laughs> several years. If you watched Pauline, she's one of the stars of Pauline, and it's just, it's super funny but it's also like just about grown-ups. You know, they have like grown-up problems and and the things that hold them back are not silly misunderstandings, right? It's no. it's actual issues that are difficult genuinely difficult of what do i tell my new partner about my previous partners how much of my life before we met really matters and in what sense is it kind to keep things a secret and in what sense is that dishonest right and i think that a lot of comedies rely on a sort of sense of shenaniganery. of like if you just had (laughs) if you
2: may coin a phrase right or
0: we could just have both said the truth this wouldn't be a problem right right and I like stories where you can't solve it that way right that that the solution here is to just keep going forward rather than like I saw you kissing a woman at the airport it's like well if you had just confronted me I could have introduced you to my sister right like that kind of stuff right? where it's just like this is bullshit this is like a made up problem this is not like how real people have a real problem and I love that in Catastrophe it's about real people real problem kinds of stuff even though they're much funnier than I think most regular people yeah and
2: it also has that classic uh, example of a thing that I love in comedy which is the acceptance of the misfortune the coincidence or whatever leads you to a more interesting comedic place than if you denied it or obfuscated or whatever.
0: Sure. So the show starts with Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan. They have like a one night stand that turns into like a one week stand. And then she's pregnant and she calls him up and is like, hey, I'm pregnant. And, and he comes back to London and they decide to make a go of things. And all of this is established. Very quickly and without much elaboration. So like, this is what's happening and this is where the show goes. I found it very effective. I really just loved it. Like, it's just charming. And in contemporary comedy, things can get cynical or bitter or ironic. And the show is just none of those things. All right, but let's get into stuff. So last night was a season premiere of season two of True Detective. Yes. What'd you think?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about the first three episodes that were sent out for review. I, I think I was too nice to it. I do believe in withholding judgment until the end because I think about how almost everybody who reviewed True Detective and wrote about it and contributed think pieces to the True Detective phenomenon got it wrong in some degree.
0: About season one?
2: Yeah, about season one, about what it was, what it was trying to do, what expectations we should hold it to. And it wasn't really until the very end that crazy finale where you've got the first half is basically like the climax of every serial killer movie you've ever seen and the second half is this bizarre like Christ <laughs> allegory with you know Can you even call Hull it an floating. allegory
0: if it's just actual Christ no, stuff? No
2: and he's like he's rising from the dead and he's like there's a shot of him like reflected in his hospital bedroom and he's floating in the stars and oh, he's yeah. wearing his robe and he's got his brawny talman hair and it's nutty mm-hmm. it's nutty It's not until you get to the very end of it that you can honestly say what the show is. And so I'm cognizant of that, and I don't want to pull the trigger too quickly on the show, but I will say there's a lot of things that are missing for me, and number one is humor. The first one was funny. It was really, genuinely funny, and the more that I think about it, particularly in context of the second season, the more it seems to me that the humor is the thing that made it popular. It made all of the other things digestible, accessible, and in some cases forgivable, because it was funny. The two of them together, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, were, they were a great comedy team, like in the way that Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock were. It was a kick to watch the two of them together. There's no couple of characters that you look forward to, like I can't wait for, you know... Vince Vaughn and his wife to be funny you know like there's nobody's doing that everybody's really really sad and brooding and tragic and and also the setting doesn't have the freshness of the first one like the first one you could say yeah there's some southern kind of southern gothic stereotypes happening but southern gothic stereotypes are not necessarily something you see on tv all the time and you don't see stories set in Louisiana that take place over three time periods and here it's like we're in L.A. Sunshine, noir land of Southern California, that's something we've seen a million times. And it's very, very well done, I think, but we've seen it a million times. So all of these things are making me concerned.
0: (laughs) How much do you think this has to do with direction?
2: I don't want to offload blame onto uh, Justin Lin. I think he's good. I think think the show's very well directed, and it's directed in a different way from the first one. Right. I do think the issue is the script. It has had a humorectomy that's a serious problem. (laughs) It has. And also, it's dispersed its energies between too many characters, I think. That said, some of the characters are promising. I like Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell reminds me of like Mickey Rourke in that late '80s phase where he just seemed to be circling the bottom of a toilet bowl all the time. Like he's like Mickey Rourke in Angel Heart, where you look at Mickey Rourke in Angel Heart and you're like, I can smell that guy. I can smell him. Like he's he's he looks like it's the beginning of the end for that character, and and he has a touch of that. There's no vanity to his performance at all. He's truly deeply scummy that character, and I like that. I mean, he's committed. And uh, I like Vince Vaughn. I know some people, a lot of people don't like Vince Vaughn in this part, but I like him because he's he's got that arrogant sort of schoolyard bully edge. But as soon as it becomes clear that this scheme that he has devised is falling apart, suddenly he's not in control anymore. He projects control when he needs to, but we are privy to the fact that his deal is falling apart, so we know that it's all about insecurity. Sure. I can't remember the last time I've seen Vince Vaughn play insecurity. That's interesting to me. So there are compensatory virtues. I'm just wondering, are there going to be enough? You know, are we going to get to the end of that and go, why did I give my time to this? Yeah. Uh, That's my concern.
0: Did you feel like that at the end of season one?
2: No, I didn't. And it felt very tight to me. It left me wanting more. And there were many, you know, at the end of every episode, they always had something where they drop a new piece of knowledge on you, or they twist something around so that something that you thought you knew what it meant, now you go, did I really, did I misunderstand that? Did it mean something different? It was very cleverly structured, and also it kept seeming like it was changing into a different show every episode. Like when we got to the end of episode four, which I think is the one with that, that police raid with the like four, four and a half minute tracking shot through the housing project with McConaughey mm-hmm. running all over the place. I never in a million years would have thought I would see a sequence like that on this particular show. And and there were a lot of sequences like that. And even that sequence set in the serial killer's dungeon, which like god, do we need another serial <laughs> killer dungeon scene? I liked the way that was done. Like as serial as cliché serial killer dungeon confrontations go, that one was to- that one was tops. <laughs> it was good. Did you have those kind of misgivings?
0: I'm yet to be hooked. And I think in season one, you know, we opened with, like, the big hug mug and McConaughey looking like shit, right? And he's, like, smoking and he's talking to the police officers. And then we have the flashbacks and stuff. And so it started with this, like, really strong sense of irony. We don't have that sense at all in the new season, which you were talking about, like, the humorectomy. But I also think there's no clash of context.
2: How did this guy become this guy?
0: I mean, we had that clash of context. But then we also had, like, how are these sort of partners, how is that partnership Viable. Matthew McConaughey's character was so weird. They called him, like, the tax man and stuff, and he was extremely... He like had, like, a sketchbook. He and carries so
2: Yeah, he's, like, he carries a sketchbook to crime scenes, and he has, like, a tiny little mirror on his wall, and he can yeah. look in one eye. And... <laughs> so he
0: had all these weird yeah. things of, like, look, you're very familiar with cop show tropes. Here's a twist on it in a lot of ways. And this, for me, there's no twist. And I hope I'm wrong, and I hope that as the season progresses, I become surprised and amazed, and it takes us places I never expected to go. Mm-hmm. But certainly so far... There's no more to it than this is just an extremely, for me, bloated murder story, like a lot of other murder stories. And it's like, she's a lady cop. She's tough. He's a mad cop. He's a drunk. And like, that's a gangster. He's sad. And it's just like, okay. (laughs) But, you know, I think there was so much more discovery happening in season one. And I think so far in in season two, I found there to be a real lack of, like, a nexus, right? Like, what's the moment where I see this and say, ooh, okay.
2: One of the reasons why I've withheld negative judgment on this season is I'm interested to see how all this stuff at the commune plays out, where we have this guy, Mm -hmm. you know, the father, he he is is the patriarchal symbol of the dispenser of wisdom, and, and a lot of the things he says sound sort of like rust coal sort of things to say. And yet it's clear even from his initial appearances that he has something to do with the tragedy of this family. You know, we sort of hear what happens to the mom, but not really. And, and, you know, there's two sisters, one of whom has become this cop who seemingly is deeply alienated from herself and from other people and is angry all of the time. And the sister who's acting out in her own way. I mean that stuff is interesting to me and I feel like it's not random that it's in there I don't know how it fits in with the land deal stuff but you know I don't know
0: I do think this season the opening credit sequence is maybe foreshadowing what's to come the way that the season one's opening credit sequence feels so essential to how that show operates absolutely in a lot of ways it's very similar it's the same creative team it has the same sort of double exposure stuff a lot of roadways right a lot of Highway imagery was in both because I think there's a lot of time spent in cars on both seasons. But much more so this season versus last, there's no imagery of like churches or ministering or crosses, which was a very big part of the credit sequence and frankly the show last season. And it's very much more super far away and super, super close up. What makes me more the most curious about sort of how the season will unfold is it seems like one of the big themes here is instead of who am I or, or, you know, what is my role, which I think was a big part of season one, it's how do I fit in? Mm. Where do I belong? And in what ways are my, like, where does my little cog fit in this big machine? And I think sort right. of figuring out the ways in which, like, a tiny piece of machinery that's broken we know can dismantle, like, an enormous operation, which is what we're seeing with the... The Vince Vaughn character watching everything huge, 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 right. his whole life, everything gears he ever did. Gears keep being yeah. removed.
2: He's got and, this master machine and gears gears keep breaking or being removed. And as
0: small as somebody being, you know, 15 minutes late to something that can really dismantle this lifelong operation. And so figuring out how your little part, you know, sometimes that can feel minimizing, but sometimes it can feel noble right. to be part of a big thing.
2: And I also just have to say a word in in defense of the style. I do like the mood. I do like the style of this. It's different from the style of the first one.
0: It's really different.
2: And that's okay. I like the ominousness of the style and I like the slowness of it and the sort of almost hypnotic meditative quality of some of the shots they go on longer than you think they're going to i like the extravagant rot of this show i I really do and it it commits it really commits and um i say this a lot and maybe people take it the wrong way like it's a slam and it's not but (laughs) this is a show that i could watch with the sound off i could watch with the sound off and i'm not saying that i don't like the performances or i don't like the dialogue i'm just saying this show looks so good it looks so interesting to me. The rhythms of it are fascinating in the way that when I go to a gallery show and I see some kind of video installation where I'm just staring at pretty colors and patterns that are interacting in weird ways. Like television can be like that. That's one of the things we talked about uh, on Hannibal that I love so much is that Hannibal never takes the shortcut to anything. Like, you know, somebody gets (laughs) up across the room to get another glass of wine and There's like 46 shots, and half of them are frickin' flowers unfolding and drops Yeah, we have like a Balanchine
0: hand where we articulate every knuckle. (laughs) Right,
2: and there's a place for that. Not every piece of entertainment has to be what I call, you know, hooray for the good old missionary position. You know, it doesn't have to be like a bare minimum of shots (laughs) getting us into and out of the point of the scene as quickly as possible. Like, it's all right to linger. It's all right to digress. It's fine, as long as it's interesting— And as long as there's that voice to pull me along, I'll I'll go. I'll go with it.
0: The show's immersiveness is extraordinary. I think the degree to which it it fully feels hatched is, is a 10 out of 10, right? Like, you totally buy into, you're talking about the mood and sort of like the atmosphere, and you can sort of get a sense of like, how humid is it? You really feel a lot of, I think, the sensations of the show. Yeah. I also miss the humor, not so much because I want it to be like season one, but because in general, I think... Humor adds depth to drama and drama adds depth to comedy. For a drama, you know, we have this, like, really intense, serious stuff. And then, for example, on Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, the stuff that really, I think, for me, separates the good from the great is humor moments. And when we see, you know, you're not just this, like, mythical, evil Satan or whatever. You, like, make a joke or there's, like, a thing you like. Satan's
2: funny. Sure. Satan's he's always, always funny. funny. Satan's usually the funniest character. That's how you get people to go in. along. That's stuff. right. As my grandfather used to say, <laughs> that's how they get you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think in terms of, of when we want to see sort of the full richness of a character and the sort of 360 idea of who anyone is... You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who never, ever makes a joke. Whether or not you find those jokes funny is a different story, but <laughs> right. no one goes through life thinking they have a bad sense of humor.
2: I'm torn between feeling like I wasn't hard enough on it and maybe I was too hard on it because it is that anthology series idea, which means that they can make a different show every time. we got different characters, it's a different story, it's a different setting, and and. What I would really love is if, you know, maybe this season two continues in this kind of funereal vein. <laughs> and then season three is like Inherent Vice, where it's like it's it's funny. It's like or it's like something like, you know, the, long, the tone that Robert Altman achieved in The Long Goodbye. You know, something like that where it's That's like. That's pretty you know, different. It is very different, but you can do that. That's the beauty of this kind of series. The possibilities really are endless and we're only at the beginning of it. I admire the fact that they whatever the hell this thing is, they've committed to it. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. It may not be everybody's cup of tea, but like it definitely gives the impression of a show that knows exactly what it is and is a hundred percent confident in what it's doing and doesn't really give a shit if you like it or not.
0: Right. It is not half assing anything, it is certainly whole assing really the entire endeavor. My one issue right now, maybe you can help me with this, or listeners, you can write us at Questions at com. What are we going to call this season? We have, like, American Horror Story, and we call season one Murder House, for example, right? We have right. these, like, terms, and I feel like True Detective season two is not catchy enough, and season one is not complete enough, right? And we need, like, a term <laughs> for these? Like, it's True Detective season one, colon... The Russ Cole one? Or, yeah, yeah. like, what are... Season
2: one could be Detective Jesus.
0: Hmm. I don't um, know.
2: I don't know. Something it's to hard. Think about. It's tough. It's tough. I guess I should give it a title.
0: If you have a suggestion, you can let us know at tvquestions at vulture.com. We'll be back in a second after this. What's your favorite Seinfeld moment or episode? What are the essential episodes you can't wait to rewatch? Puffy shirt? Spare a square? Double dip? Pretzels are making me thirsty? Elaine's Dancing, Did a Dingo Eat Your Baby, Junior Mints. This Wednesday, June 24th, for the first time ever, you can stream all episodes of Seinfeld exclusively on Hulu. For $7.99 a month, watch all nine seasons of Seinfeld and so many other shows on all of your supported devices with your Hulu subscription on Hulu.com. So now we're going to talk about the first half of season three of Orange is the New Black, and after that we have an interview with Norma herself, actress Annie Golden. But to get things started, season three, Matt, how'd you feel?
2: I love it. I love it. (laughs) I mean, I I I love the show. I loved season one and two, and and I'm loving season three. And I just feel like it's one of those shows where you can't really talk to me about the show in anything resembling a sensible way, because I'll just you know if you start to talk too much trash about it, I'll just wave you away. (laughs) I'll just walk away. I'll just plug my ears there are moments on the show where they hit the theme button a little too hard or maybe people lay some exposition or some research on you that's a little too obviously exposition or research and there are moments where maybe they pivot from comedy to drama and back again a little too abruptly. But I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like, I feel like the show is so unusual and so confident that any lapses they have from moment to moment just seem insignificant to me. And And the control over tone this season particularly seems like a quantum leap forward and and I feel like they always knew what they were doing but I feel like they've settled in in a way that's interesting and that season premiere which we were talking about earlier is a great example of that the show reminds me of mash and there's a moment at the end of season one of mash where they're taking some chances with editing they're taking some chances with tone in a very very confident way like a very relaxed way and I love that moment when you feel like a TV show is feeling its oats, and I feel like this show—I got that feeling from it during this Mother's Day episode, where they were nail- they were pretty much nailing everything.
0: In terms of the mash comparison, I think one thing that really comes through is how do you create normalcy in an abnormal, particularly involuntary environment? Exactly. And so we have this real pull between—I miss the comforts of my old life, but in what ways does recreating that just? reinforce how far away I am from it right so it's like oh it's fun to be able to do normal things but also it makes it so much worse when they stop
2: yes it's great to see your family again if you've been away for a long time but the circumstances are always like awkward and weird and painful and then we have you know we have this like
0: this fun sort of field day kind of thing and then immediately like before it can get too fun there's the alarm and everyone has to lay down. Everyone has to drop and down. Suddenly it's, it's so humiliating. It's incredibly humiliating. And we see the yeah. kids freak out and then there's like little kids crying and older kids being like, mom, what are you doing? And it's this humiliation. And it's just, just you know, every time you think you can stop remembering how incarcerated you are, of course you can't. And of course no. there's no, you can't ever really have a moment of free thought even before you're Literally dragged to the ground.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's rough. It's really, really rough. And there's so many moments where we get to know the characters, and the well, the way they use flashbacks this year is really interesting. They've got the flashbacks are tight. They're very, very tight. Like they're almost like Simpsons or Seinfeld flashbacks. They're so brief. Now we're not getting like elaborately interwoven past and present narratives. We're getting like a flash of like thirty seconds or forty five seconds of a moment. And then we don't go into that character's past again until the end for a knockout punch like that Calvin and Hobbes moment. That's interesting.
0: Especially in season one and in a lot of season two, the flashbacks clarified exactly what crime led to someone's incarceration. And we saw people on the moment of their arrest, for example. And that's not true for everyone. We're still not sure exactly what I think Red's crimes are. But this season, we're very far often from exactly what it is that got people in jail. So we see some crimes exist. It's not clear that that's the actual, is this why you're in prison or is this just part of your story? So for example, with Chang's episode, I really liked that episode. I thought it was fascinating. But do we know, like, is she in jail because of her hand in this assault? Is it because of her work in illegal, like exotic imports and stuff? Or was there, did she just get involved in a bad crew and something else went south and that's why she's in prison?
2: I don't know. I love that you're bringing this up because this is something that's been obsessed me as I've been watching this too, which is why are we seeing the things that we're seeing in the flashbacks? That's interesting to me. And I mm-hmm. feel like that's a key that once we've gotten a handle on it, it's going to unlock the show in a whole new way. And there are times when I get the feeling that what they're going for here is they are deliberately sort of thwarting our expectation for factual explanations of what happened. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, they are telling us how they ended up in prison. Because they're giving us insight into their character, into their upbringing, into their personality difficulties, addiction um, problems related to you know resentments with their parents, their family, their social class, whatever. So they are telling us how they ended up in prison. They're not they're not necessarily clarifying all the nuts and bolts of the thing that ended up with the judge slamming their <laughs> gabble down and saying X number of years. But I feel like we're getting it. I right. feel like we're getting it, and that's and that's interesting. I, you know, that's not necessarily what I would have expected, and I like that.
0: I agree. I One of the things I really like about the show, and I think this season especially, is how devoted it is to showing as many sides of a character as possible. Yeah. And especially when I think the way that sort of Americans think about people who are currently incarcerated or people who have ever been incarcerated it's with deep, deep prejudice, and typically, you know, I mean, listen to any sort of political conversation about it, it can be so villainized and so flattened into just, you are the worst thing that ever happened to you that you ever did or the worst person you ever ran around with then it becomes this sort of totality of an identity of somebody and Orange is a New Black goes to great lengths to sort of flesh people out and, and to show that you know it's possible to have done something bad and still be a full person who's you're not your entire spirit is not but you you had Things that made you happy and people who loved you and people you loved. And there were nice things you did, too. And, and it's not just, like, sitting at home sharpening knives for all your murders or whatever, right? Like,
2: <laughs> right. that even yeah. though these people
0: are, some of them, capable of tremendous violence, they're also capable of, you know, wanting to watch a soap opera and, like, yeah. eat a clementine. and, and
2: Unexpected <laughs> compassion, too. Unexpected moments of Huge compassion. Huge compassion. I mean, you that's, like, that the lot. guiding
0: factor of the show as I think... Even as the characters don't necessarily guard one another with tremendous compassion, the show regards its own characters with seemingly infinite amount of compassion.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a tough love sort of feeling. Red, particularly, I've been been—I've I felt a lot of affection for Red this year. I always liked Red, but some of the situations that they put her in have been really interesting, and especially when I compare them to situations that she was in in season two, where she doesn't seem as harsh, unyielding, Interestingly so, as she was in season two. Like, I sense a lot more compassion and a lot more um, wandering off the emotional beaten track with with her. And especially that scene where uh, Sam asks her to translate for his Russian bride. Like, that's really interesting. There's a lot of things going on in that scene. Like, there's the immediate action that's happening in the room which is important from a plot standpoint but there's also her working through some issues of feeling like there were promises broken there's betrayals i feel like what's happening with her business on the outside is coming through in that scene and then we've got sam of course who is um He's a fascinating character, too. Like, he's changed a lot from season one, where he seemed almost like this close to a bureaucratic villain, as the show had given us. And there are moments where he seems really genuinely sympathetic, like he's trying to grapple with his own issues. And other times where this kind of Neanderthal sort of erupts from him. Mm-hmm. And and that's often in response to what's going on in his life, you know, which is true to life. That A lot of times when people yell at you, they're not really yelling at you. They're yelling at somebody else who you don't even know. What the issue is, you know, they're of like course. working through their sure. issues. Yeah, yeah. It all feels very true.
0: One thing I've heard from some people is that they feel like the season got a little bit soft. Do you feel like that
2: has this that... season?
0: Yeah, and that sort of compared to the sense of danger or doom in seasons one and two, and certainly the villain with V in season two, and the sort of constant threat, for example, in season one, that it felt like Piper was always very, very much in danger's way, that that sensation has dissipated.
2: There was more of a sense of jeopardy in season two. That's true. But I feel like this doesn't lack for drama. And and it has a different kind of drama for me, which is the drama of seeing these characters fuck up, you know, (laughs) like they get themselves in these horrible, horrible situations and it's their own doing. And yet, in some ways, it's not. Like all the business with Piper is really interesting because I find her unsympathetic and yet tremendously sympathetic at the same time. Like I'm, I'm more into her now than I think I ever have been. Like I don't, I don't find her as sort of like amusingly chirpy and you laugh at her. Like I find, like I, I'm feeling for her more now. I mean, what do you think of all this engineering of bringing her lover back into the prison? Like, like she's that's kind of a shitty thing to do, and yet I feel like I don't necessarily hate her, considering that how she ended up in prison.
0: Yeah. It's a show where I care so little about the actual forward-moving plot and care wind up caring so much more about... Just sort of the flashbacks and, like, enriching what we currently have because time is moving very slowly on the show. For example, Daya has been pregnant for, like, a hundred (laughs) years.
2: She's got the gestation of an elephant. Right. right? Except
0: that we know that the show is taking its time, right? Like, obviously, not even nine months have elapsed since Piper was initially incarcerated. You know, I didn't feel like I missed Alex last season. I thought the season worked just fine without her and just as, like, the sort of callous person I am. It's like, we didn't even need you. But I, I was happy to have her back. I think... You know, I think she brings out like an interesting part of Piper's identity and, and personality in a way that I think Larry and Polly never really did. No. Um, and I certainly didn't don't miss them this season in terms of story.
2: That moment where her parents come to visit and she gives them the rundown of her life mm-hmm. is really interesting. And she says, I'm learning more Spanish and I can fix things. I'm part of a community and then she says, I have a girlfriend. She says three variations of I have a girlfriend. <laughs> and each time she's more emphatic about it. You know, like she says like, who
0: I love. Right. Yeah.
2: Who I love. She's that's a, yeah. the second time she says it, she adds who I love. And that's a big thing. Like and I feel like maybe that's ultimately the reason why she she engineers her return to the prison. You know, I
0: thought that was absolutely the yeah. reason, you know, you know and- because it's,
2: and it's almost not really about Alex. It's about the assertion of her true identity in opposition to her husband, who is now completely out of the picture.
0: I guess I saw it more as. She's lonely. She's scared. And she missed having a profound ally and somebody that she does love and care about. And, you know, when she sees Alex, it's not only through the eyes of people who are in prison. She can still see her as the person she had exciting adventures with. And, right. And, and, can who still be seen. U- and who
2: used her, too. Right.
0: So there is like a thread of some kind of revenge plot there, right, where it's like, oh. Un-
2: unconscious, maybe.
0: Perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think non-existent right Right, there is part of piper that's like you got me here guess what like i am not finishing this right and that's why
2: i feel like alex really doesn't have any ground to stand on when she's criticizing piper about that right at best i would say like if you were looking at this from a lofty detached perspective (laughs) i would say now you're basically you're about even
0: piper still has more to be mad about i think
2: yes she does well she can and i think she can still stick it to alex a couple (laughs) more times and then then they'll be even
0: do you have a favorite litchfield person
2: for me, it's she doesn't even have the best storylines, but it's it's uh, Mm-hmm. I just love her. I just think she's great, <laughs> and she's just magnificent. And everything that she says and does feels true to me, and it's charming and hilarious and wonderful and real. And but I like almost all of them. There's a tremendous uh, advantage that a show like this has is we don't have a chance to get too tired of anybody. I think if it were you know Piper front and center for an hour we'd get tired of her pretty fast. And I think that's probably true of almost any of the characters. But, but in small doses, they're all fascinating. And even characters that I wouldn't have thought I would want to learn about, I'm, I'm enjoying seeing them. Healy's a good example of that. It's weird. Sometimes I have to remind myself that I hated this guy's guts. At one point, I absolutely hated his guts in the first season. I think like, with
0: Healy and with Caputa, it's easy to forget how capriciously cruel it was they yeah. were in in the first two seasons, and how very much he represented the abuses within prison systems. And when we see him at home with his like mail order bri- and we see this, yeah. we, you felt sorry for him, even though you're like ugh, I hate you, (laughs) right? You still, you're like, oh, but, like, no one deserves to suffer, like, I don't, like, you don't, I don't want to hang out with you, but, like, have an okay life, that, those things can both be true. And then this season especially, and I think through his interactions with Red in particular, and we've seen her soften tremendously, too, you know, she's the one who put, like, a used tampon in, in Piper's breakfast right right and the threat of red as villain was a huge part of season one it was and throughout season two her going back and forth with v for sort of control of things that was a huge engine of violence and and what was happening and sort of what was endangering people and in some of that you know that's where we saw pusey got the shit kicked out of her right and we saw tasty and stuff like like align themselves with v and i think the show does away with the remnants of that pretty quickly with tasty and with suzanne about v being dead
2: this is a character who when she was on screen she was so in control she was so in command she was so intimidating and in her absence you're really seeing these basically motherless daughters running around not knowing what to do with themselves that's the, thing, the big theme
0: then. of the season, yeah, right, is definitely perfect... motherhood. and yeah. um,
2: They kind of lay it out for you in that pilot, we, I guess. In the yeah. season
0: premiere, it's Mother's Day, but then yeah. in most of the flashbacks, we also see people at some point – interacting with or rebelling against, you mentioned Piper's conversation with her mom in particular. We see Nikki with her mom. We see Flaka and her mom. Obviously within the prison, we have Daya and her mom. Yeah, there's a um, lot of,
2: there's multiple generations of women. And also there's a moment where Nikki says when she's being driven away from the prison, she says, Red's not my mom. I wouldn't wish that on her. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. That's another one of those knife twist moments. People rejecting love that's offered to them is something that happens a lot on this show. Mm -hmm. And, And they distrust it. A lot of times they distrust the circumstances. They distrust the motive. But when they accept it, it's really quite moving because they really, really need it.
0: And with that, let's turn it over to Alex Jung, who's in studio with Annie Golden.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm here with
1: a very special guest, Annie Golden, who you might recognize as the mute but highly expressive Norma from Orange is the New Black. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. Thank
3: you, Alex. You could say who, who you might recognize as the mute, and then I wouldn't say anything, and you'd be like, oh, that's a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> she thought she was being funny. <laughs> Wrong.
1: No, no, she's just in character. Right. Is it hard to not talk?
3: <laughs> um, it was challenging. I didn't know that that's what Genji had in mind for me. Hmm. I auditioned for Sister Ingalls, which the brilliant Beth Fowler aced. So I didn't even know what was expected of me until I was told that I was being offered the role of a traumatic mute in a, in a woman's prison. You just really, you are the narrator of the piece. I mean, you, you project to the audience what they should feel about what's going on. Is it funny? Is it really funny? Hmm. Are there going to be consequences? Norma seems to be the voice of reason and logic in a crazy world.
1: And this season in particular, we really see her character sort of open up and take a major role in the prison. I'm so
3: excited about that. Yeah, and I couldn't (laughs) speak about it. You know, it was in the can since before last Thanksgiving. And you can't really say anything. And people were like, what can you tell me about? Well, I can tell you nothing. (laughs) Because then I would have to kill you and I'd never get out of Litchfield.
1: Right. Genji will actually cut your tongue out.
3: (laughs) uh, It's exactly that. Or, you know what? If you ruined anything that that fine lady created, you would want to tear your own tongue out. (laughs) So there you go.
1: Did you have a conversation with her beforehand about, like, did she sit you down and say, we're going to do this for your character this season. It's
3: so wonderful how organic it is. It's kind of shooting from the hip. Right. So there was never really a conversation. But then when people's backstories started to emerge, even mm-hmm. the first season with Sophia, with Laverne Cox, uh-huh. people's backstories became a c- celebratory thing where I would contact someone when I would read a script and go, <laughs> congrats on your backstory. And I love it. And that's great. And then for episode seven in season three, Tongue Tied.
1: Where your character, yeah, it, it's her backstory, Norma's backstory, yeah. and we discover that she was in a cult. Yes. Basically married to a man who had that sort of personality cult, had a lot of wives, it seemed. Yes, um, yeah, he had a you, harem, yeah. Right. But you were the faithful believer.
3: Yeah. Who did not take care of this child, Norma Romano, that right. she went through her whole adult life, you know, as a child, not speaking, embarrassed to speak devastated to utter a sound right all these women have not been taken care of in their younger lives you can tell that right you look back chang Chang's story yeah mail a bride and then rejected by the guy right you know who brought her over and right. that's why she's invisible it's just so heartbreaking all these all these backstories
1: what do you feel like for your character was the wound
3: we don't know. I mean, there's still more to come right. because, like, you know, like with Pensatucky, she started as a little girl, the flashback, and, and Tasty, the flashback. Uh, right. You know, as children, Suzanne, Crazy Eyes, right. the flashback as children. Right. Some of us don't start that early. Right. So there are a lot of truths to be told and unearthed. So it's like life. We don't really know what's coming next. Right. And what we should know from our past, it surprises us as it unfolds.
1: I was curious to hear why you think Norma is in prison.
3: What they reveal in our past, like with Nikki Nichols, Natasha Leon mm-hmm. and Flaka with her endeavor in high school, you know, it's not always what it seems. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of real great. Because yeah. if you think about it, Guru Mac, they were in the woods. Right. They were in an isolated area. Right. He was talking in the van about charges you know, that were pending for him. Right. Yeah, the writers are really clever. What you think they're in for, they may not be in for that. So we're
1: leaving the door open is basically The doors what are
3: always open <laughs> with the writers and right. with Janji. The doors are always open.
1: For you, when you were reading the script, did you think, oh, this is why she's in prison? Or was your thought process, well, it could be another murder somewhere else <laughs> down the line?
3: Or other issues, taking right. the rap for him or... Mm. If she was the only wife who stuck around
1: mm. maybe
3: co-signing for stuff that, you know, that went wrong. Right. You just don't know.
1: Jumping back to cults, it is really interesting because they are very attractive in so many ways. And I think we can malign them obviously now or sort of say, oh, people were so naive, right? Yeah, yeah. But the truth is they fill something within yes. someone else. And I was curious to hear you talk about both what you felt like the cult leader— fulfilled in your character, and Mm -hmm. also what you started to fulfill in everyone else at the prison?
3: Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's such an interesting question. Well, for Guru Mac, I think what Norma went in looking for was just to belong, Mm -hmm. to belong on her own terms. Mm -hmm. And Guru Mac embraced her, Mm -hmm. you know, completely when he saw that it was devastatingly challenging and, and traumatic for her to utter a sound. And he thinks he doesn't have a following anymore. And she's like, right. "It's out in nature. It's all there for us, you mm-hmm. know, to to rediscover and to r- reclaim." Right. And then when she's in this general population, she just, she again, she she's in the background, but she's really important to the people in power, you know, Red and right. and, and even Healy and right. and Gina. And I love what they do with Norma because I think she flits from tribe to tribe, which. Not many of the inmates do.
1: But she forms her own personality cult, essentially. Yeah.
3: but I mean, unwittingly, you know, perhaps, unwittingly and unwillingly too. If you go, people go. Did do you Norma think it's know? Unwilling? I do. If you look at the, if you look at that episode, when she wakes up in the morning, you see that she's the sounds of of the of the prison. It, it speaks volumes on her face, her cross to bear. Hmm. But when she walks through that cubicle. She's Smiley Burnett. You know, Uh she's Norma. She's smiling, giving thumbs up up and waving. And and then Angie Rice comes up to her and says, you know, can I have my morning blessing? Uh She's not really sure what that is, your morning (laughs) blessing. Well, what am I giving you? Uh What am I giving you again? Uh And she says, oh, you know that shoulder squeezing thing you do? Uh So she does it. And Angie goes, yep, that's it. So Norma, again, is being told. Right. What is expected? Mm. Then when she goes in the bathroom, she's trying to have a private moment in the stall. Mm-hmm. And a new cast member, Daniel Herbert, Babs Babson, mm-hmm. loving her. <laughs> you know, the, you know, she's running her mouth at the door. Right. You know, oh, I need you to put a hex on. I need you to. And Norma's going, okay, what is that? And she goes, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, old boyfriend, new girlfriend, put a hex on the letter. So she does whatever she thinks will impress the girl, gives it back to her. Bab says, "Is that it?" Norma goes, "Oh, and you like that shoulder crunching thing I do? Mm-hmm. I'll do that. Maybe that'll appease her." Right. She does that, and then Babs goes, "Oh, I felt that. Uh-huh. that That also ma- that also makes me emotional when I look at it, and it made me emotional as Norma because she was giving these women something.
1: What do you think she was giving them?
3: Something to believe in." You know, which is what Red says later when she's trying to discredit Norma in the kitchen. She says, you know, these women will grasp at anything. Mm-hmm. They're just looking for something to believe in. They'll grasp at anything. And Norma gets her feelings hurt now because she has she has seen that they have instilled her with some kind of power. Mm-hmm. And it has been used for good. That's only when that conflict with so-so mm-hmm. starts to happen that it becomes mean girls, school cool chick click. Right. Which Norma was never a member of, was right. maybe in her past a victim of.
1: Right. But in a sense, that it was the true believer who kind of yes. ruins things. Yes. Emma, Miles's character, yes, is yes. the one who, who, in a sense, instigates the fight with Soso. Yes. Sort of leads it. But yes. at the same time, she's also the hardest core in Bel- terms of believer. believing yes, in Norma. Yes, in
3: investing. Right. But we see her background as well. Right. And it is outsiders, and right. it is in this world, but not of this world, right. the Quakers, which is really quite profound, and I mean only Emma Miles could pull off that angelic, gorgeous look with that bonnet and and i mean so so only has herself to blame when i watched when I watched the episode unfold hmm. and she uh, leanne was trying to confide in uh-huh. Brooke and said, "You know, I was one of those religions that you know people laugh at, and right. you know." And then Brooke says, "You know, she's back to her Valley Girl, vacuous, uh, superficial self." Uh-huh. And she goes, "You wore a bonnet," uh-huh. and she laughs. She put the nail in her coffin. <laughs> then I mean,
1: so you're Team Leanne on this one?
3: <laughs> well, you know, it was just, well, no, no, I'm I'm not. But I, and Norma would never be. But Norma wasn't there right, right, when Soso laughed. But Annie was watching the episode at right. home, and I went, "Uh oh." <laughs> That doesn't bode well. Right. I didn't know that happened. Right. You know. And Norma would have been right there. Right. With the With the piece of paper saying to Brooke, kindness. Right. No laughing at attire or bonnets or right. beliefs. Right. Kindness. Right. You know. So, I mean, if you remember, that's a private moment. Right. You know, Leon Leanne goes to apologize to Brooke, and Brooke laughs at, you wore a bonnet? That's it. Forget it. That's done. Right. You know, someone tried to apologize to you. And we're all trapped. What Selena's Levda lab- uh, did uh, this year as Gloria, mm-hmm. when she she said, we're trapped in here. Right. That was so gut-wrenching to me. That people have wonderful speeches. I got arias with my silence. <laughs> 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 Speaks volumes. It does. Yeah, but still, everybody has profound, wonderful things to say.
1: Thank you so much for being here with us today.
3: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: Back to you, Margaret.
3: That's it for this week's
0: Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge.
2: I'm Matt Sollersites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Sollersites.
0: Until next week, happy watching.